evening I want to uh, dedicate the talk and the evening um, to my father. This is the fifth anniversary of his death, um, exactly five years ago, just about this time actually, and it was a, it was a good death. He was elusive, not in pain, and at home and had the whole family around him. I was mostly, um, the last week I was mostly um, meditating almost all the time with him. So it was very, um, very powerful. His name was Simon. And it is, yes. Oh, you're right. Oh my gosh, thank you, thank you. Yes, the, the mic was on, but the mic was not here. <laughs> Should I start again? <laughs> okay, I don't know whether that got picked up or not. Um, um, may have been. Um, and so, um, I wanna yeah, just, just honor him. He, very sweet man, he was uh, a scientist and uh, quite interested in meditation. The last 25 years of his life, we meditated together. It was quite nice. He did, did short retreats, not as long as this. And um, I remember about 25 years ago, I got him as a birthday present, a big red Zafu. We used to sit on it. So anyway, I want to just honor, honor my father on this, uh, this evening. And I want to talk this evening about uh, mindfulness and the obstacles to mindfulness. And I was reflecting that uh, sometimes uh, I think of our practice, the larger sense of practice, in a simple way, which is that We're as mindful as we can be in the moment. And that mindfulness tells us something about what's happening. And on the basis of that mindfulness, we summon our best wisdom and compassion in order to respond. That's basically all we do our whole lives. And I think that's the essence, really, of living well, is having a kind of a wise response. There's a famous story of a Zen teacher who uh, was asked, I think it was near his time of death, um, one of these questions like, what is the nature of enlightenment? You know, And people were waiting for him to respond and you know, some people were thinking, well, enlightenment is deep insight and a total inner penetration of inner and outer suffused with compassion and a strong sense of the emptiness of all phenomena simply rolling on. He didn't say that. He, his answer, what is enlightenment? What is the nature of this deepest understanding and wisdom? His answer was appropriate response. not particularly mystical, right? 
appropriate response, and, I, and for me that's connected with this sense of our practice being developing an appropriate response moment to moment. Not looking for this or that state, but doing our best to be present. But on the basis of what we see is there, how can I respond wisely to it? How can I respond wisely if there's peace and a sense of contentment? How can I respond wisely if there is um, pain in the body, if there's distraction? Our practice really is the same moment to moment, I would say for the rest of our lives. What's the appropriate response? And if that short formula that we are mindful as best we can, can be, and then on the basis of what we see, we summon our best wisdom and compassion to develop an appropriate response, then it's clear that mindfulness plays a very uh, important role. That it actually is connected with wisdom, ultimately, as mindfulness deepens. So what, what is mindfulness? I want to name some of the qualities of mindfulness and it can help us to understand this really important uh, core practice that we do. One aspect of mindfulness is that it is a kind of uh, closely focused attention on our experience. We attend, we develop attention to experience uh, moment to moment. And mindfulness is the ability to stay with experience. You know, from a, there's from a text from about, um, I think about 1500 years ago, which gives a commentary on mindfulness. And it says, the word uh, mindfulness signifies presence of mind, attentiveness to the present. It has the characteristic of not wobbling. I don't know what the original Pali is that's translated as wobble, but so the translator translated. Uh, not wobbling, that is not floating away from the object. Its function is absence of confusion or non-forgetfulness. Non so it's this quality of simply staying present with the object, being able to um, stay with it, stay attentive. And that, that's one of the core descriptions of what mindfulness is. Another expression of this is by uh, a German uh, Buddhist monk named Nayonapanika Tara, who I think died 30 or 40 years ago, wrote some very groundbreaking books, one of them called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, which is a very excellent book on, on mindfulness especially. And he particularly wants to interpret mindfulness as what he calls bare attention, which is simply this simple, sustained attention on whatever's happening. That's really what we're developing. He says, it is mindfulness in its specific aspect of bare attention that provides the key to the distinctive method of the foundations of mindfulness, 
and accompanies every accompanies the systematic practice of it. Bare attention is the clear and single-minded awareness of what actually happens to us and in us in all the successive moments of perception. It is called bare because it attends just to the bare facts of perception without reacting to them by deed, speech, or mental comment. So there's that connecting with the object that's before us. It could be the breath, it could be uh, a body sensation, it could be an emotion. You know, right now we're especially training mindfulness to, to be attentive to, to the breath and to settle some. Another quality of mindfulness is that mindfulness in itself uh, doesn't have a preference as to what appears in our experience. Mindfulness in that sense is a neutral tool that bare attention can be aware of anything. And our job, as it were, is to, is to be mindful of whatever's happening. We don't really have, ultimately, a preference. We can be mindful of everything. And ultimately, a lot of the deep learning comes from being mindful enough so that we end up having studied all the contours of human experience. Sit on the cushion long enough, a lot of things happen. You know, the, the Thai teacher, Achen Cha, who is the teacher of Jack Kornfield, he spoke of our practice being like sitting at a still forest pool and watching all the amazing animals come and drink at the pool. You know, some of them we like, some of them we don't like, but we sit at the pool and we watch the animals come. Another quality of mindfulness is that we come closer to direct experience and move away from the commentary and the interpretations. It's not that interpretations or commentaries are bad or wrong. But all too often, we get taken away by the interpretations, and we actually don't know that they're interpretations. And we also, especially in, in this very, uh, I would say, mental and cognitively oriented culture, we often don't have such good access to the direct experience of our senses. And so a lot of what we do in mindfulness is we actually come back to our senses, so to speak. We stay with the sensations of the body. As we uh, will practice more in these next days, we'll be attending to all the different sense experiences. And tomorrow morning, I'll be introducing uh, the further experiences of the body, uh, body sensations, and we'll be bringing more attention to taste and smell as when we eat. And we learn better how to be with that direct experience and noticing and notice more when our mind is moving away from direct experience. Very, very crucial in daily life to know that distinction. To know when I'm having a strong emotion and to be able to distinguish that from where my mind goes with a strong emotion. I may have anger, and I may go to blaming my partner or my coworker. 
And it's very helpful to know the distinction between the anger and the blame. Again, it's not to say the other person isn't responsible in some way, but it's very, very helpful in so many ways to know that distinction. And we study that distinction over and over again in our experience. And we learn how to hang out more with the direct experience and less being taken away by the thoughts, the commentaries, the ideas, the associations, and so forth. As we do that, there, we, we come to, often come to a kind of uh, fresher perception of experience, fresher perception of the sunset or the stars or the trees or the lizards. You know, and sometimes on retreats we have what feels like a sharpening of perception. You know, as William Blake the poet said, a kind of cleansing of the doors of perception. There's a sweet poem that I wanted to read uh, about that clarity of perception, I, I think, by uh, Edith uh, Sodergran, a uh, poet I don't know very well, but this poem was given to me by a friend. And she lived uh, in actually not a very long life. She only lived to be 31 years old. She lived in the first part of the 20th century. This is a poem called Forest Lake. It's about that kind of more connection with direct experience. I was alone on a sunny shore by the forest pale blue lake. In the sky floated a single cloud and on the water a single isle. The ripe sweetness of summer dripped in beads from every tree and straight into my opened heart a tiny drop ran down. Do you have that sense of the mind being pretty quiet to receive that single drop in the heart? Mindfulness is also present-centered. We keep coming back to the present moment. We notice the tendencies to move to future and past. We study that. We study those tendencies. I was telling one of the groups that when I first started doing mindfulness practice, I found myself planning all the time. I mentioned that I come from a family of planners and that my sister has an advanced degree in planning. Actually, it's very useful. Candy, she's, she's a um, health planner with Kaiser. I think does very helpful work. But planning is very strong in our family. Sometimes on family, when we had, would have family get-togethers, you know, and people would kind of come from different places, the first thing we would do, before we even found out how each other were doing, we would plan when the next time was that we would get together. It was, you know, it was interesting <laughs> to see that. And so there I was starting to meditate. And of course, what did I do? I planned a lot. I would sit there, you know, and I'd, I was a student at the time, and I would sit like planning a report or something I had to do, and I would sit there in, out, in, out, and then I'd go to the planning for like 20 minutes. And then I'd come back, in, out, and a while more, 
and go in, out. And that was one of my first real uh, kind of big insights was that I had the, what sometimes is called the um, blazing insight into the totally obvious that I was planning a lot. <laughs> and, and that if I only thought of my report 20 times instead of 80 times in two days, that might be adequate. And so, so we each have our own version of that. We see, we see those uh, tendencies. You know, mine was to be um, future-oriented a lot, not so much past. Some of us go more to the past. So in mindfulness, we see that, and we work with those tendencies. We continually notice it, and we and we and we come back to the we come back to the present moment. Mindfulness is also non-reactive. With mindfulness, we simply are present as much as possible, noting the tendencies to react to what's there. That will be particularly uh, the tendency when there's either something fairly significantly pleasant or fairly significantly unpleasant. And we can use the word reactive to mean that reaction to either grab hold of something in experience or to push it away. That's, that tends to be how we use the word reactive. You know, and we try to develop a non-reactive way of being present, even with the significantly pleasant, even with the significantly unpleasant. That's where a lot of the training occurs, because it's not easy. Because our minds will tend to want to glom on to the, the pleasant, you know. Much like, you know, a child and maybe some adults, you know, very pleasant food, mm-mm-mm. You know, the hand reaches with the fork for the next bite, even when the mouth is still chewing. That's called reaction, or that's the grabbing hold tendency. We know that, you know, or we might grab hold of a meditative experience. Oh, oh cool, I must be, I'm turning the tide, or whatever. And. Also, the unpleasant, we react, that's maybe more obvious. We push away, we react, the mind doesn't like what's happening. And we develop as much as possible this non-reactive um, awareness. Not easy. And a lot of what we study is all the ways that we do react, that we grab hold or we push away. And we do that over and over again. The essence of mindfulness is also Repetition. Kind of the learning method of mindfulness is not the sudden cathartic insight, but it's really the repeat, it's like the repetition of a small moment of insight many, many, many times until it builds a kind of critical mass. And that's why we sit. That's why we sit for, in this retreat for hours, because it does work by repetition. And it's a little bit um, unpredictable. We can sit with an inst you know, we can sit with something, an old pattern or a difficult experience. We can sit with it 50 times, and it just keeps on happening. And on the 51st time, an insight arises. It's mysterious. It really calls for that certain degree of patience and faith just to, to be there. Mindfulness is also non-judgmental. 
again, really follows from some of the other things I've said, but mindfulness is able to be present with whatever's there. And a lot of what we learn about in our practice is the extent to which we are judgmental of our experience, of something else in the retreat. Um, it's one of the main patterns, I think, in our culture. You know, and it's, it's, a very, it's a very powerful force in many of our lives. And so we get to study that and we just bring our attention back to be with whatever's happening in this manner of bare perception. Maybe two other points which really start weaving mindfulness into some of these other qualities. I mentioned that we, we can simplify practice and talk about mindfulness then connecting with our best wisdom and compassion to make possible an appropriate response. And I think as mindfulness matures, it also becomes caring, more caring, more loving, and wiser. That mindfulness, as we stay with it, moves in those directions. Mindfulness by itself is not necessarily wise. You know, an example which occurs to me is I can walk down the middle of the street where I live, really feeling the steps of my walking, hearing the sound get louder and louder as it starts moving. Something may seem to be coming towards me and I'm really with the sound and I'm really with the steps for those last few moments of my life as the truck <laughs> comes by. Very, very mindful, not so wise, right? We, we can have versions of that. You know? And I think that's important to know because we, we ultimately we want to have a kind of wise mindfulness. And in the, in the uh, Thai forest tradition, they actually coined a word called satipanya, which means mindfulness wisdom, which actually isn't there in the original teachings of the Buddha, but they wanted to make that connection clearer. And we will see over the course of the days how mindfulness is connected with wisdom. And, and even uh, the further development of mindfulness actually at a certain point takes as its object not simply the breath or the uh, bodily experience or taste or something like that, but it actually can take as an object the patterns of experience in a way which, in which the mindfulness actually becomes a kind of wisdom. We see patterns, we notice what leads to suffering and so forth. Mindfulness has the capability of doing that. And I think it also, mindfulness also in its maturity connects with our loving kindness practice. You know, when we're doing them now, it, they can seem different and separate, you know, and, and uh, seem to have different instructions and so forth. But as we do mindfulness more, I think there's a quality of heart that, that comes with the, the giving of attention. You know, I remember one of my teachers a long time ago, he said, in the very act of attention is love, is a kind of care. And I think as we practice more, mindfulness tends to have that quality of warmth more.
and tends to be unified. As we sit with our experience, compassion often arises when we're with our suffering, for example. And the heart tends to open as we, as we practice more in that way. So we develop mindfulness, and it has those different factors that really get developed, being more present-centered, being able to stay with the object, knowing the difference between interpretation and direct experience and so forth. And we also, especially, I think very key to our practice is we begin with the mindfulness of the body. And I think that's especially crucial in this culture. We begin with mindfulness of the breath and mindfulness, as we'll see tomorrow, mindfulness of body sensations and all the different experiences of the senses. And I think this is very, very helpful for us connecting with direct experience in this culture in which we are, for many of us, we're disconnected from our bodies. We live in this very mental culture with you know, seemingly, in many ways, getting more uh, mental with the, kind of the digital world, the virtual world, and so forth. And our emphasis on the body really brings us back in a very basic way. It's a very powerful antidote. So when we work with the body, it's, it's very, very uh, significant. We start with the breath and the body. It's a way of grounding. It's a way of slowing down what a lot of people find as they're very active minds. And so the first practice of mindfulness that we do is classically was mindfulness of the body, but I think it's very, very relevant nowadays. And you know, for me, very, very significant. I remember when I was first doing mindfulness, it was like a revelation. Because again, I was a student, I was thinking all the time. That was my occupation, thinker, right? And uh, I had been uh, an athlete. I had been. I was a competitive swimmer, and so I was quite physical. But I wasn't aware of my body. And I remember a time when I was walking. Once I was. I had a year in uh, Germany, and I was living in Germany on a farm, and I was walking about um, about four or five miles along a river into town in this small town called uh, Schwäbisch Hall. So I, don't, I don't know if anyone knows Germany. But it was a beautiful old medieval town. I would walk along the, um, the river to go to my German classes you know, for the first uh, month or two. And I remember one day having the thought, I'm not aware of my body at all. I'm just like consciousness on a pole. It was kind of a shocking insight, you know, consciousness on a pole. That, you know, and this was, again, someone who had, was physical. I loved hiking and did all, but I wasn't aware of my body. And I think that's, that's, I'm not the only one with the experience of consciousness on a pole, right? <laughs> but an interesting phrase. It was, in, it was um, and so when I first started doing mindfulness practice, it was like a return to the body, you know, and it was exciting and different, and you know, I remember 
I remember talking with Jack Cornfield once, and you know, I was uh, still thinking a lot of the time. And I talked with him, and I said, you know, can you really live and have experience for a lot of the day that's non-conceptual? And he said, yes, I've sometimes spent weeks in a non-conceptual world at a time. I said, wow, that sounded pretty interesting. And, um, and so many of us have to work with that active mind. And the mindfulness of the body is so helpful for doing that. You know, and we keep, we keep coming back in a way. And it actually is a very, very important practice for bringing mindfulness into our daily lives. I won't say so much about that now, but towards the end of the retreat, I'll, I'll say more. That mindfulness of the body is very, very, very central to having this practice be alive in our daily lives. And it's really possible to, ha to, to really uh, continue that mindfulness of the body in the midst of interactions, in the midst of the flow of our daily life and our walking, and I think even on the computer. But I won't say much about that now because most of you by now have forgotten about computers. Right? Yes. Okay. Okay. Computers in the past. We're back in a kind of an ancient time, really. You know, just just using our senses. So we start with mindfulness of the body, and yet mindfulness isn't easy, right? Mindfulness is hard. We have the patterns and habits of thought. Sometimes we don't want to be with what's there, right? Mindfulness, yeah, the way you may think, yes, the way Donald's talking about mindfulness sounds great, sign me up, but then we have a knee pain. I don't know about this mindfulness. I'll do mindfulness with the pleasant experiences. How's that? Can I do that? Can I bargain? You can bargain, but it won't work. So, so we have to also see the way that mindfulness is hard, the way that, mind, that mindfulness is not so easy to develop. And in the classical teachings of the Buddha, there's um, actually a model of what are called the hindrances, uh, which are really uh, another, probably more accurate translation is the difficult energies. They're the difficult energies that make mindfulness, awareness, uh, challenging for us. And it's said to, they're said to be five. I think we could actually have a longer list if we took uh, stock of the experience of everyone here. But there are five classical ones which are said to make mindfulness hard. One of them is when we have a very strong wanting or desire. A second is when we have a very strong aversion or pushing away. A third is when we have sleepiness, or the translation that you'll find, which is a Victorian one of the term, is sloth and torpor. <laughs> we, we're indebted to the Victorian translators, both for their pioneering work and for their choice of words that 
will ultimately have to be redone. <laughs> but anyway, the commentary, side commentary, hopefully not too judgmental. So, okay. okay. Um, so there's, there's sloth and torpor, her sleepiness, and there's also a kind of restlessness, which could mean also restlessness of mind, the very active mind that's going everywhere. There's a kind of restlessness. And the last is doubt. So I want to just say a little bit about these five and suggest some ways of working with them. And, and then I think I want to actually finish a little earlier and make some time for any questions or points that, that you may have so we can have a little bit of dialogue. So the initial so-called hindrance or difficult energy is when we find ourselves wanting a lot. And sometimes that happens when we don't have so much uh, stimuli occurring. You know, we really minimize the stimuli. We don't interact with people. We encourage you not to read. We, you know, it's like something new on the bulletin board becomes... <laughs> the laughter indicates that's already set in, right? <laughs> Oh my gosh, another, you know, I mean, I, I know from my own experience, like the bulletin board just becomes the whole social hub of the retreat, right? And even, you know, I know from my own experience, sometimes just wanting to hear people ask questions, you know? And sometimes at the end of a period of questions, oh, I really want to hear another question. And it's just interesting to watch that, isn't it? You know, we're, you know there's like a, just a, a wanting that is often there, and then we can notice it. And the, with most of these um, difficult energies, we can work with them in probably in two main ways. One is to study them, and that's probably the main way. We can be mindful of them. I can be mindful of the wanting. I can be mindful of the strong desire. I can be mindful of, I can tune in and say, what am I experiencing? that um, has me right now by the bulletin board. You know, we can really notice those uh, aspects of mind. And we'll say more, probably in two mornings, in more detail about being with states of mind and states of emotion, emotional states. But for right now, we can just notice that they're there. If you notice them there, you can use a, a very quiet label and just say something like um, wanting. Not to try to make it go away, but just to notice it, to be with it. Ultimately, we have to study all of these states uh, in, some, in some depth. You know, we can also uh, do things that in, in some ways move in the opposite direction. We can be careful with how much food we eat. You know, in, in a classical list of what's wise to do with the, the, the difficult energies, there are, there are lists of, of uh, antidotes and how to respond. And actually, something, uh, three, uh, as it were, aspects of advice appear on all of the suggestions. Uh, moderation in eating is suggested. Also, um, suitable um, 
conversation and noble friendship are actually taken to be those, the last two may be more relevant for daily life, but basically being in a community of like-minded people. But, you know, just being moderate in eating can be a very powerful practice when we notice wanting because, to be honest, at a retreat like this, there are not that many experiences which are just almost certainly positive. The meals constitute one of those. So it's like, you know, we, we could have an interesting account of what is like the inner life of a retreat and it's like the meals. Oh, gosh, a meal's coming. And I'm exaggerating a little bit. and not, not everyone feels this, but I'm speaking from personal experience. You know, a meal, wow. wow. And sometimes that also happens for the evening talk. You know, like, okay, the talk, you know. I don't have to pay attention to my butt. <laughs> so, so just to watch those, you know, just to watch what we do with that. And to sometimes be moderate or not to always, um, as it were, indulge in a certain desire can be very helpful. Aversion for some strong tendency to push away could be sometimes be anger, could be uh, judgment of self or other, could be wanting to push away a uh, sensation in the body. And again, we can bring that quality of just being with it noticing what is this like. So often, we may have just immediately followed aversion and acted on it. Here, we step back and we say, let me look at this. What is this like? How does the mind and body work when it doesn't like what's happening? Not easy, right? But it's something that can be a lot of learning. You know, we can learn that it's possible to be with the unpleasant in a way that may be deeper than we may have experienced before. You know, it's one of the reasons that um, mindfulness meditation has come to have a very powerful role in uh, medical care because people can actually learn when there is, let's say, chronic pain. They can learn to be present with the pain and not react so much. And it's the reaction which causes most of the pain. The reaction to pain actually causes way more pain than simply being with it. And that's been applied in the, in the area of uh, medicine and healthcare. It's quite important. So we can study those tendencies. And again, as we saw in the uh, questions, I, I think uh, from this morning. Do you remember this morning? How long have we been here? How many would say four days? <laughs> Three? So we were discussing that we, we don't stay with the unpleasant when there's the likelihood of damage. But there are these other experiences where we know there's not damage occurring and it's just unpleasant. Then we can stay with it and study it. And sometimes the unpleasant may be an unpleasant emotion. We can stay with it and study it. So how to work with sleepiness? How many of us experience sleepiness a little bit or more than a little bit in the sittings today? Yeah. So the first thing is just to know that it's present. With all of these difficult energies, 
It's like in that idea of that with when we're mindful and know that it's happening, that makes it possible to ask for an appropriate response. So really crucial with all of this, simply to know that something is happening. It goes so far. You know, to really know, okay, sleepiness is occurring. We can also study it. In meditation, a lot of sleepiness is not tied to the need for sleep. And there's a kind of, often a kind of energetic balancing that I talked about some this morning that occurs. And it's very interesting to study, to be, can you be mindful of being sleepy? Not so easy. But it's fascinating sometimes when you do that, sometimes you'll notice yourself being sleepy and suddenly the sleepiness lifts like a cloud moving away and suddenly there can be a pretty settled mind and alertness. It's fascinating. You can stay with it. You can also use antidotes to sleepiness. You can stand up, as mentioned this morning. Uh, can sometimes open the eyes for maybe half a minute or something, just kind of bring in more energy. Can take uh, walks, uh, be a little brisker in the walks. Can do yoga. Um, not to make it necessarily a project because a lot of the sleepiness just is there for a while and eventually it leaves, you know, if it's not connected with a physical need. Jack Kornfield's teacher, when he was sleepy, when Jack was sleepy, told him to sit on the edge of a well that went down 50 feet. <laughs> Jack wasn't so sleepy <laughs> at that point. Um, we haven't developed wells here or, you know, cliffs for people with sleepiness issues to sit on. Probably wouldn't go over as big in America as in Thailand, that, those kind of methods, you know. But um, mostly just to be present with it, just to see what might bring about alertness, but without the need, kind of, without it being a compulsive need to get rid of it. When there's, when there's a quality of uh, restlessness, we want to really to uh, also just look at it. Notice what does it feel like in the body, the mind. It can be a very active mind sometimes. It can also be the, the body being really a little bit antsy, right? A little kind of almost like anxious in a way. And we can study it. We can, we can uh, notice. We can be present with it. Um, Sometimes it helps to develop more concentration. Sometimes the, you know, when it's a body energy and the energy is buzzing around, sometimes it helps to, be, to develop more concentration. So we might do something like working with the breath and try to have a little more focus. Sometimes use labels with the breath, like in, out, or count the breaths. In, one, in, two, and so forth. That can help build concentration. When it's the mind that's very active, uh, we can sometimes just notice it, label it. And sometimes when the mind is very active, it's helpful to come more into the body. And so you may have experienced that after the yoga, the sitting may have felt a little more settled. How many, how many people felt that? Some. And so some 
being with the body, walking and so forth can be very helpful for an active eye. Mostly, we just can stay with it and be patient. You know, for many of our active minds, it takes some time. You know, it's like with my watching my planning or, or you know, it was actually, that was the year I had come back from Germany and in addition to planning, I also spent a lot of time deciding whether I wanted to go back to Germany or stay in the United States. So I just sat there. This is my first month of meditation, just going in, out, in, out, Germany, United States, Germany, United States, Germany, United States for like 20 minutes, then in, out for about 30 seconds, and then Germany, United States, Germany, you know, and it calmed down. After a month, I knew what country I wanted to live in, and I, you know, had a different content for my active mind <laughs> appeared. So we can be with it, we can be present. Um, the last challenging energy is called doubt. And that can be doubt about self, about my capacities. You know, meditation's not for me. I'm not a good meditator. I should just go in for full-time yoga. Or or something else. It could be a doubt about one's capacities. Could be more deeply. Could be a doubt about one's um, very um, worthiness at times. That appears in our consciousness, and that those are those are hard. Doubt is said to be one of the hardest of the difficult energies. It could be a doubt about this has too much Buddhism for me. You know, I don't want to be religious, like my mom. Remember. I don't want to be religious. Could be doubt about that. With doubt, again, we notice it. We try to stay with it. We study it. And, you know, there are different uh, ways of working with doubt depending on the source. You know, if there's a kind of self-doubt, we can notice it. It can be very helpful to do loving-kindness practice, to do that which really cares for ourselves. It can also be very valuable to, to study the judgments and um, over time, it's possible to transform them. You know, it's one of the, I may talk more later in the retreat because it's something that I've worked with a lot. I've been, I'm writing a book on that topic right now and I'm, um, I've worked with groups for, monthly groups for about eight years on the theme of the judgmental mind. So it's something that I've uh, been interested in growing out of personal experience. Um, and so uh, we can do work in that way is when there's doubt about something, about the practice or about whether these teachings really work, sometimes um, understanding and sometimes developing the quality of faith or trust can be very helpful. So we work with those challenges. You know, mindfulness isn't easy. It's simple in many ways, but we work with those challenges and they're, they're doing that as part and parcel of the very process of development. It's very much from being with the challenges that we really grow and mature in mindfulness. And ultimately, we free up this very beautiful energy of attention, of awareness, 
And in a way, that quality of being present, being aware, increasingly becomes our home. It increasingly is where we live. Uh, um, American teacher named Chan Sumedho actually even preferred a refuge, his preferred refuge, even perhaps more preferred than the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, was taking refuge in awareness, taking refuge in the quality of presence, which ultimately, when we stay with it, is deeply healing and leads to a kind of uh, core wisdom. When the Chinese were translating the word mindfulness into Chinese from, um, from uh, Pali and Sanskrit, they developed a, a composite set of characters. And according to um, a man named Amin Tan, who's, who came to one of my retreats, I, I brought in the characters, and maybe I'll post this. And the, the characters for mindfulness in Chinese bring out some of, this quali- some of the qualities we've mentioned in quite a beautiful way. There are two basic characters for mindfulness. One of them is a composite that has uh, the connotations of, of a, a certain quality of being present and being quiet. And the other composite characters bring together the, the meanings of home and heart. When we bring these together, I sometimes think that what is mindfulness? It's a kind of finding a home for the heart and the mind in the present moment, which is, has this quality of calm presence and quiet. A home for the heart in the present moment with those qualities of calm and quiet. That's interesting that that was the understanding implicit in the very translation. So I'll invite us just to sit for a minute with that sense of mindfulness as a potential home for you, a refuge, a place to learn, to grow, to heal, to transform. So we'll just sit for a minute now. 